The Open Conspiracy by H.G. Wells. Read by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. Chapter 1. The Present Crisis in Human Affairs. The world is undergoing immense changes. Never before have the conditions of life changed so swiftly and enormously as they have changed for mankind in the last 50 years. We have been carried along with no means of measuring the increasing swiftness in the succession of events. We are only now beginning to realize the force and strength of the storm of change that has come upon us. These changes have not come upon our world from without. No meteorite from outer space has struck our planet. There have been no overwhelming outbreaks of volcanic violence or strange epidemic diseases. The sun has not flared up to excessive heat or suddenly shrunken to plunge us into Arctic winter. The changes have come through men themselves. Quite a small number of people, heedless of the ultimate consequence of what they did, one man here and a group there, have made discoveries and produced and adopted inventions that have changed all the condition of social life. We are now just beginning to realize the nature of these changes, to find words and phrases for them and put them down. First they began to happen, and then we began to see that they were happening. And now we are becoming to see how these changes are connected together and to get the measure of their consequences. We are getting our minds so clear about them that soon we shall be able to demonstrate them and explain them to our children and schools. We do not do so at present. We do not give our children a chance of discovering that they live in a world of universal change. What are the broad lines upon which these alterations of condition are proceeding? It will be most convenient to deal with them in the order in which they came to be realized and seen clearly, rather than by the order in which they came about or by their logical order. They are more or less interdependent changes. They overlap and interact. It was only in the beginning of the 20th century that people began to realize the real significance of that aspect of our changing conditions, to which the phrase, the abolition of distance, has been applied. For a whole century before that, there had been a continual increase in the speed and safety of travel and transport, and the ease and swiftness with which messages could be transmitted, but this increase had not seemed to be a matter of primary importance. Various results of railway, steamship, and telegraph became manifest. Towns grew larger, spreading into the countryside. Once inaccessible lands became areas of rapid settlement and cultivation. Industrial centers began to live on imported food. News from remote parts lost its time lag and tended to become contemporary. But no one hailed these things as being more than improvements in existing conditions. They are not observed to be the beginnings of a profound revolution in the life of mankind. The attention of young people was not drawn to them. No attempt was made or considered necessary to adapt political and social institutions to this creeping enlargement of scale. Until the closing years of the 19th century, there was no recognition of the real state of affairs. Then a few observant people began, in a rather tentative, commentary sort of way, to call attention to what was happening. They did not seem to be moved by the idea that something had to be done about it. They merely remarked, brightly and intelligently, that it was going on. And then they went on to the realization that this abolition of distance was only one aspect of much more far-reaching advances. 
Men were traveling about so much faster and flashing their communications instantly about the world because a progressive conquest of force and substance was going on. Improved transport was only one of a number of portentous consequences of that conquest. The first to be conspicuous and set men thinking, but not perhaps the first in importance. It dawned upon them that in the last hundred years there had been a stupendous progress in obtaining and utilizing mechanical power, a vast increase in the efficiency of mechanism, and associated with that an enormous increase in the substances available for man's purposes. From vulcanized rubber to the modern steels, and from petroleum and margarine to tungsten and aluminum. At first, the general intelligence was disposed to regard these things as lucky finds, happy chance discoveries. It was not apprehended that the shower of finds was systematic and continuous. Popular writers told about these things, but they told of them at first as wonders, wonders like the pyramids, the Colossus of Rhodes, and the Great Wall of China. Few realized how much more they were than any wonders. The seven wonders of the world left men free to go on living, toiling, marrying, and dying, as they had been accustomed to for immemorial ages. If the seven wonders had vanished or had been multiplied threescore, it would not have changed the lives of any large proportion of human beings. But these new powers and substances were modifying and transforming, unobtrusively, surely, and relentlessly, very particular of the normal life of mankind. They increased the amount of production and the methods of production. They made possible big business to drive the small producer and the small distributor out of the market. They swept away factories and evoked new ones. They changed the face of the fields. They brought into the normal life, thing by thing and day by day, electric light and heating. Bright cities at night, better aeration, new types of clothing, a fresh cleanliness. They changed a world where there had never been enough into a world of potential plenty, into a world of excessive plenty. It dawned upon their minds after their realization of the abolition of distance that shortage of supplier had also been abolished and that irksome toil was no longer necessary to produce everything material that man might require. It is only in the last dozen years that this broader and profounder fact has come through to the intelligence of any considerable number of people. Most of them have still to carry their realization a step farther and see how complete is the revolution in the character of the daily life these things involve. But there are still other changes outside this vast advance in the pace and power of material life. The biological sciences have undergone a corresponding extension. Medical art has attained a new level of efficiency, so that in all the modernizing societies of the world, the average life is prolonged, and there is, in spite of a great fall in the birth rate, a steady, alarming increase in the world's population. The proportion of adults alive is greater than it has ever been before. Fewer and fewer human beings die young. This has changed the social atmosphere about us. The tragedy of lives cut short and ended prematurely is passing out of the general experience. Health becomes prevalent. The continual toothaches, headaches, rheumatism, neuralgias, coughs, colds, indigestions that made up so large a part of the briefer lives of our grandfathers and grandmothers fade out of experience. We may all live now, we discover, without any great burden of fear, 
wholesomely and abundantly for as long as the desire to live is in us. But we do not do so. All this possible freedom of movement, this power and abundance, remains for most of us no more than possibility. There is a sense of profound instability about these achievements of our race. Even those who enjoy, enjoy without security. And for the great multitude of mankind, there is neither ease, plenty, nor freedom. Hard tasks, insufficiency, and unending money worries are still the ordinary stuff of life. Over everything human hangs the threat of such war as man has never known before. We're armed and reinforced by all the powers and discoveries of modern science. When we demand why the achievement of power turns to distress and danger in our hands, we get some very unsatisfactory replies. The favorite platitude of the politician excuses himself for the futilities of his business. Is that moral progress has not kept pace with material advance. That seems to satisfy him completely, but it can satisfy no other intelligent person. He says, moral. He leaves that word unexplained. Apparently, he wants to shift the responsibility to our religious teachers. At the most, he has made, but the vaguest gesture towards a reply. And yet, when we consider it, charitably and sympathetically, there does seem to be a germ of reality in that phrase of his. What does moral mean? Mores means manners and customs. Morality is the conduct of life. It is what we do with our social lives. It is how we deal with ourselves in relation to our fellow creatures. And there does seem to be a much greater discord now than there was, say, a couple hundred years ago, between the prevailing ideas of how to carry on life and the opportunities and dangers of the time. We are coming to see more and more plainly that certain established traditions which have made up the frame of human relationships for ages are not merely no longer as convenient as they were, but are positively injurious and dangerous. And yet, at present, we do not know how to shake off these traditions, these habits of social behavior which rule us. Still less are we able to state, and still less bring into operation, the new conceptions of conduct and obligation that must replace them. For example, the general government of human affairs has hitherto been distributed among a number of sovereign states. There are about 70 of them now, and until recently that was a quite tolerable system of frameworks into which a general way of living could be fitted. The standard of living may not have been as high as our present standards, but the social stability and assurance were greater. The young were trained to be loyal, law-regarding, patriotic, and a defined system of crimes and misdemeanors with properly associated pains, penalties, and repressions kept the social body together. Everyone was taught a history glorifying his own state, and patriotism was chief among the virtues. Now, with great rapidity, there has been that abolition of distance, and everyone has become next-door neighbor to everyone else. States once separate, social and economic systems formerly remote from one another, now jostle each other exasperatingly. Commerce, under the new conditions, is perpetually breaking nationalist bounds and making militant raids upon the economic life of other countries. This exacerbates patriotism in which we have all been trained and with which we are all, with scarcely an exception, saturated. And meanwhile, war, which was once a comparative slow bickering upon a front, has become war in three dimensions. It gets at the non-combatant almost as searchingly as the combatant. 
and has acquired weapons of stupendous cruelty and destructiveness. At present, there exists no solution to this paradoxical situation. We are continually being urged by our training and traditions to antagonisms and conflicts that will impoverish, starve, and destroy both our antagonists and ourselves. We are trained to distrust and hate foreigners, salute our flag, stiffen up in a wooden obedient way at our national anthem, and prepare to follow the little fellows in spurs and feathers who pose at the heads of our states into the most horrible common destruction. Our political and economic ideas of living are out of date, and we find great difficulty in adjusting them and reconstructing them to meet the huge and strenuous demands of the new times. That is really what our gramophone politicians have in mind, in the vague way in which they have anything in mind. When they put on that well-worn record about moral progress not having kept pace with material inventions. Socially and politically, we want a revised system of ideas about conduct, a view of social and political life brought up to date. We're not doing the effective thing with our lives. We are drifting. We are being hoodwinked and bamboozled and misled by those who trade upon with old traditions. It is preposterous that we should still be followed about and pestered by war, taxed for war preparations, and threatened bodily and in our liberties by this unnecessary and exaggerated and distorted survival of the disunited world of the pre-scientific era. And it is not simply that our political way of living is now no better than an inherited defect and malformation, but that our everyday life, our eating and drinking and clothing and housing and going about, is also cramped, thwarted, and impoverished, because we do not know how to set about shaking off the old ways and fitting the general life to our new opportunities. The strain takes the form of increased unemployment and a dislocation of spending power, we do not know whether to spend or save. Great swarms of us find ourselves unaccountably thrown out of work, unjustly, irrationally. Colossal business reconstructions are made to increase production and accumulate profits, and meanwhile the customers with purchasing power dwindle in numbers and fade away. The economic machine creaks and makes every sign of stopping, and its stopping means universal want and starvation. It must not stop. There must be a reconstruction, a changeover. But what sort of changeover? Though none of us are yet clear as to the precise way in which this great changeover is to be effected, there is a worldwide feeling now that changeover or a vast catastrophe is before us. Increasing multitudes participate in that uneasy sense of insecure transition. In the course of one lifetime, mankind has passed from a state of affairs that seems to us now to have been slow, dull, ill-provided and limited, but at least picturesque and tranquil-minded to a new phase of excitement, provocation, menace, urgency, and actual or potential distresses. Our lives are part of one another. We cannot get away from it. We are items in a social mass. What are we to do with our lives? Chapter 2. The Idea of the Open Conspiracy I am a writer upon social and political matters. Essentially, I am a very ordinary, undistinguished person. I have a mediocre brain, a very average brain. And the way in which my mind reacts to these problems is therefore very much the way in which most brains will react to them. 
But because it is my business to write and think about these questions, because on that account I am able to give more time and attention to them than most people, I am able to get rather ahead of my equals and to write articles and books just a little before the ideas I experience become plain to scores of thousands, and then to hundreds of thousands, and at last to millions of other people. And so it happened that a few years ago, around about 1927, I became very anxious to clear up and give form to a knot of suggestions that seemed to me to have in them the solution of this riddle of adapting our lives to the immense new possibilities and the immense new dangers that confront mankind. It seemed to me that all over the world intelligent people were waking up to the indignity and absurdity of being endangered, restrained, and impoverished by a mere uncritical adhesion to traditional governments, traditional ideas of economic life, and traditional forms of behavior, and that these awakening intelligent people must constitute first a protest, and then a creative resistance to the inertia that was stifling and threatening us. These people, I imagined, would say first, we are drifting, we are doing nothing worthwhile with our lives, our lives are dull and stupid and not good enough. Then they would say, what are we to do with our lives? And then, let us get together with other people of our sort and make over the world into a great world civilization that will enable us to realize the promises and avoid the dangers of this new time. It seemed to me that as one after another we woke up, that is what we should be saying. It amounted to a protest, first mental and then practical. It amounted to a sort of unpremeditated and unorganized conspiracy against the fragmentary and insufficient governments and the widespread greed, appropriation, clumsiness, and waste that are now going on. But unlike conspiracies in general, this widening protest and conspiracy against established things would, by its very nature, go on in the daylight, and it would be willing to accept participation and help from every quarter. It would, in fact, become an open conspiracy, a necessary, naturally evolved conspiracy, to adjust our dislocated world. I made various attempts to develop this idea. I published a little book called The Open Conspiracy as Early as 1928, into which I put what I had in my mind at that time. It was an unsatisfactory little book even when I published it, not quite plain enough and not quite confident enough, and evidently unsure of its readers. I could not find out how to do it better at the time, and it seemed in its way to say something of living and current interest, and so I published it. But I arranged things so that I could withdraw it in a year or so. That I did. And this present book is a largely rewritten version, much clearer and more explicit. Since that first publication, we have all got forward, surprisingly. Events have hustled thought along and have been hustled along by thought. The idea of reorganizing the affairs of the world on quite a big scale, which was utopian, and so forth in 1926 and 1927, and still bold in 1928, has now spread about the world until nearly everybody has it. It has broken out all over the place, thanks largely to the mental stimulation of the Russian five-year plan. Hundreds of thousands of people everywhere are now thinking upon the lines foreshadowed by my open conspiracy. Not because they had ever heard of the book or phrase, but because that was the way thought was going. 
The first open conspiracy conveyed the general idea of a world reconstructed, but it was very vague about the particular way in which this or that individual life could be lived in relation to that general idea. It gave a general answer to the question, what are we to do with our lives? It said, help to make over the new world amidst the confusions of the old. But when the question was asked, what am I to do with my life? The reply was much less satisfactory. The intervening years of thought and experience make it possible now to bring this general idea of a reconstructive effort, an attempt to build up a new world within the dangers and disharmonies of our present state, into a much closer and more explicit relation to the individual, open conspirator. We can present the thing in a better light and handle it with a surer touch. Chapter 3. We have to clear and clean up our minds. Now, one thing is fairly plain to most of us who are waking up to the need of living our lives in a new way and of making over the state, which is the framework of our lives, to meet the new demands upon it, and that is that we have to put our minds in order. Why have we only awakened now to the crisis in human affairs? The changes in progress have been going on with a steady acceleration for a couple of centuries. Clearly, we must all have been very unobservant. Our knowledge, as it came to us, must have been very badly arranged in our minds. And our way of dealing with it must have been cloudy and muddled. Or else we surely would have awakened long ago to the immense necessities that now challenge us. And if that is so, if it has taken decades to rouse us, then quite probably we are not yet completely awake. Even now we may not have realized the jaw before us in its completeness. We may still have much to get plain in our minds, and we certainly have much more to learn. One primary and permanent duty, therefore, is to go on with our thinking and to think as well as we can about the way in which we think and about the ways in which we get and use knowledge. Fundamentally, the open conspiracy must be an intellectual rebirth. Human thought is still very much confused by the imperfection of the words and other symbols it employs, and the consequences of this confused thinking are much more serious and extensive than is commonly realized. We still see the world through a mist of words. It is only the things immediately about us that are plain fact. Through symbols, and especially through words, Man has raised himself above the level of the ape and come to a considerable mastery over his universe. But every step in his mental ascent has involved entanglement with these symbols and words he was using. They were at once helpful and very dangerous and misleading. A great part of our affairs, social, political, intellectual, is in a perplexing and dangerous state today because of our loose, uncritical, slovenly use of words. All through the later Middle Ages, there were great disputes among the schoolmen about the use of words and symbols. There is a queer disposition in the human mind to think that symbols and words and logical deductions are truer than actual experiences. And these great controversies were due to the struggle of the human intelligence against that disposition. On the one side were the realists, who were so-called because they believed in effect that names were more real than facts. And on the other side were the nominalists, who from the first were pervaded by a suspicion about names and words generally, who thought there might be some sort of catch in verbal processes, 
and who gradually worked their way towards verification by experiment, which is the fundamental thing about experimental science. Experimental science, which has given our human world all these immense powers and possibilities that tempt and threaten it today. These controversies of the schoolmen were of the utmost importance to mankind. The modern world could not begin to come into existence until the human mind had broken away from the narrow-minded verbalist way of thinking, which the realists followed. But all through my education, I never had this matter explained to me. The University of London intimated that I was a soundly educated young man by giving me a degree in first-class honors and the liberty to acquire and wear an elegant gown and hood. And the London College of Preceptors gave me and the world its highest assurances that I was fit to educate and train the minds of my fellow creatures. And yet, I had still to discover that a realist was not a novelist, who put rather too highly flavored sex appeal into his books, and a nominalist, nothing in particular. But it had crept into my mind as I learnt about individuality in my biological work and about logic and psychology in my preparation as the perfect preceptor, that something very important and essential was being left out and that I wasn't at all as well equipped as my diplomas presently said I was. And in the next few years, I found the time to clean up this matter pretty thoroughly. I made no marvelous discoveries. Everything I found out was known already. Nevertheless, I had to find out some of this stuff for myself quite over again, as though it had never been done. So inaccessible was any complete account of human thinking to an ordinary man who wanted to get his mind into proper working condition. And this was not that I had missed some recondite precious refinements of philosophy. It was that my fundamental thinking at the very roots of my political and social conduct was wrong. I was in a human community, and that community, and I with it, was thinking of phantoms and fantasies as though they were the real and living things, was in a reverie of unrealities, was blind, slovenly, hypnotized, base and ineffective, blundering about in an extremely beautiful and an extremely dangerous world. I set myself to re-educate myself, and after the practice of writers wrote it in various trial pamphlets, essays, and books. There's no need to refer to these books here. The gist of the matter is set out in three compilations, to which I shall refer again almost immediately. They are The Outline of History, The Science of Life, Book 8 on Thought and Behavior, and The Work, Wealth, and Happiness of Mankind. In the last, it is shown quite plainly how man has had to struggle for the mastery of his mind has discovered only after great controversies the proper and effective use of his intellectual tools, and has had to learn to avoid certain widespread traps and pitfalls before he could achieve his present mastery over matter. Thinking clearly and effectively does not come by nature. Hunting the truth is an art. We blunder naturally into a thousand misleading generalizations and false processes. Yet there is hardly any intelligent mental training done in the schools of the world today. We have to learn this art if we are to practice it at all. Our school teachers have had no proper training themselves. They miseducate by example and precept. And so it is that our press and current discussions are more like an impromptu riot of crippled and deaf and blind minds than an intelligent interchange of ideas. What bosh one reads, what rash and impudent assumptions, what imbecile inferences. 
But re-educating oneself, getting one's mind into health and exercising it and training it to think properly, is only the beginning of the task before the awakening open conspirator. He has not only to think clearly, but he has to see that his mind is equipped with the proper general ideas to form a true framework for his everyday judgments and decisions. It was the great war first brought home to me how ignorant I was, and how ill-finished and untidy my mind about the most important things of life. That disastrous waste of life, material and happiness, since it was practically worldwide, was manifestly the outcome of the processes that constitute the bulk of history. And yet I found I did not know, and nobody else seemed to know, history in such a fashion as to be able to explain how the Great War came about or what ought to come out of it. Versailles, we all seem to be agreed nowadays, was silly. But how could Versailles be anything else than what it was in view of the imperfect, lopsided historical knowledge and the consequent suspicion, emotion, and prejudice of those who assembled there? They did not know any better than the rest of us what the war was. And so how could they know what the peace ought to be? I perceived that I was in the same case with everyone else, and I set myself first of all for my own guidance to make a summary if all history and get some sort of map to more serviceable conclusions about the political state of mankind. This summary I made was the outline of history, a shameless compilation and arrangement of the main facts of the world story, written without a touch of art or elegance, written indeed in a considerable hurry and excitement, and its sale, which is now in the third million, showed how much I had in common with a great dispersed crowd of ordinary people, all wanting to know all disgusted with the patriotic, litigious, twaddling, gossipy stuff given them as history by their schoolmasters and schoolmistresses, which had led them into the disaster of the war. The outline of history is not a whole history of life. Its main theme is the growth of the human intercommunication and human communities and their rulers and conflicts. The story of how and why the myriads of little tribal systems of 10,000 years ago have fought and coalesced into the 60 or 70-odd governments of today, and are now straining and laboring in the grip of forces that must presently accomplish their final unison. And even as I completed the outline, I realized that there remained outside its scope wider and more fundamental and closer, more immediate fields of knowledge, which I still had to get in order for my own practical ends and the ends of like-minded people who wanted to use their lives effectively if my existence was to escape futility. I realized that I did not know enough about the life in my body and its relations to the world of life and matter outside of it to come to proper decisions about a number of urgent matters, from race conflicts, birth control, and my private life, to the public control of health and the conservation of natural resources. And also, I found I was astonishingly ignorant about the everyday business of life how and why of the miner who provided the coal to cook my dinner, and the banker who took my money in return for a checkbook, and the shopkeeper from whom I bought things, and the policeman who kept the streets in order for me. Yet I was voting for laws affecting my relations with these people, paying them directly or indirectly, airing my ignorant opinions about them, and generally contributing by my behavior to sustain and affect their lives. 
So with the aid and direction of two very competent biologists, I set to work to get out as plain and clear a statement as possible of what was known about the sources and nature of life and the relations of species to individuals and to other species and the processes of consciousness and thought. This I published as the science of life. And while this was going on, I set myself to the task of making a review of all human activities in relation to each other, the work of people and the needs of people, cultivation, manufacture, trade, direction, government, and all. This was the most difficult part of this attempt to get a rational account of the modern world, and it called for the help and counsel of a great variety of people. I had to ask and find some general answer to the question. What are the 1,900-odd million human beings who are alive today doing, and how and why are they doing it? It was, in fact, an outline of economic, social, and political science. But since, after the outline of history, the word outline has been a good deal cheapened by various enterprising publishers, I've called it the work, wealth, and happiness of mankind. Now, I find by getting these three correlated compilations into existence, I have at last, in however rough a fashion, brought together a complete system of ideas upon which an open conspirator can go, before anyone could hope to go on to anything like a practical working directive answer to, what are we to do with our lives? It was necessary to know what our lives were, the science of life, what had led up to their present pattern, the outline of history and this third book, to tell what we were actually doing and supposed to be doing with our working lives, day by day, at the present time. By the time I was through with these books, I felt I had really something sound and comprehensive to go upon, an ideology, as people say, on which it was possible to think of building a new world without fundamental surprises, and moreover, that I had got my mind stripped down and cleaned of many illusions and bad habits so that it could handle life with an assurance it had never known before. There is nothing marvelous about these compilations of mine. Any steady writer of average intelligence with the same will and the same resources, who could devote about nine or ten years to the task and get the proper sort of help, could have made them. It can be done, it is no doubt being done, all over again by other people, for themselves and perhaps for others, much more beautifully and adequately. But to get to that amount of vision and knowledge to achieve that general arrangement and understanding was a necessary condition that had to be satisfied before any answer to the question. What are we to do with our lives? Could even be attempted. And before one could become in any effective way an open conspirator. There is nothing indispensable even now, I repeat, about these three particular books. I know about them and refer to them because I put them together myself, and so they are handy for me to explain myself. But most of what they contain can be extracted from any good encyclopedia. Any number of people have made similar outlines of history for themselves, have read widely, grasped the leading principles of biology, and grappled with the current literature of business science, and do not in the least need my particular summary. So far as history and biology are concerned, there are parallel books that are as good and serviceable. Van Loon's books, for example. Yet even for highly educated people, these summaries may be useful in bringing these things known with different degrees of thoroughness into a general scheme. They correlate, and they fill up gaps. 
Between them, they cover the ground, and in some fashion that ground has to be covered before the mind of a modern citizen is prepared to tackle the problems that confront it. Otherwise, he is an incapable citizen. He does not know where he is and where the world is. And if he is rich or influential, he may be a very dangerous citizen indeed. Presently, there will be far better compilations to meet this need, or perhaps the gist of all the three divisions of knowledge, concentrated and made more lucid and attractive, may be available as the intellectual frame of modern education throughout the world, as a general account of life that should be given to everyone. But certainly no one can possibly set about living properly and satisfactorily unless he knows what he is, where he is, and how he stands to the people and things about him. Chapter 4. The Revolution in Education Some sort of reckoning, therefore, between people awakened to the new world that dawns about us and the schools, colleges, and machinery of formal education is overdue. As a body, the educated are getting nothing like that account of life which is needed to direct our conduct in this modern world. It is the crowning absurdity in the world today that these institutions should go through a solemn parade of preparing the new generation for life, and that then, afterwards, a minority of their victims, finding this preparation has left them almost totally unprepared, should have their own accord to struggle out of our world heap of starved and distorted minds to some sort of real education. The world cannot be run by such a minority of escaped and re-educated minds alone, with all the rest of the heap against them. Our necessities demand the intelligence and services of everyone who can be trained to give them. The new world demands new schools, therefore, to give everyone a sound and thorough mental training, and equip everyone with clear ideas about history, about life and about political and economic relationships, instead of the rubbishy head content at present prevalent. The old world teachers and schools have to be reformed or replaced. A vigorous educational reform movement arises as a natural and necessary expression of the awakening open conspirator. The revolution in education is the most imperative and fundamental part of the adaptation of life to its new conditions. These various compendia of knowledge constituting a modern account of life on which we have laid stress in the previous section, these supplements to teaching, which are now produced and read outside the established formal education world and in the teeth of its manifest hostility, arise because of the backwardness of that world. And as that world yields slowly but surely to the pressure of the new spirit, so they will permeate and replace its textbooks and disappear as a separate class of book. The education these new dangerous times in which we are now living demands must start right, from the beginning, and there must be nothing to replace and nothing to relearn it. Before we can talk politics, finance, business, or morals, we must see that we have got the right mental habits and the right foundation of realized facts. There is nothing much more to be done with our lives until we have seen to that. Chapter 5. Religion in the New World Yes, objects a reader, but does not our religion tell us what we are to do with our lives? We have to bring religion as its fundamental matter into this discussion. From our present point of view, religion is that central essential part of education which determines conduct. 
religion certainly should tell us what to do with our lives. But in the vast stir and occasions of modern life, so much of what we call religion remains irrelevant or dumb. Religion does not seem to join on to the main parts of the general problem of living. It has lost touch. Let us try and bring this problem of the open conspiracy to meet and make the new world into relation with the traditions of religion. The clear-minded, open conspirator who has got his modern ideology, his lucidly arranged account of the universe in order, is obliged to believe that only by giving his life to the great processes of social reconstruction and shaping his conduct with reference to that, can he do well with his life. But that merely launches him into the most subtle and unending of struggles, the struggle against the incessant gravitation of our interests to ourselves. He has to live the broad life and escape from the closed, narrow life. We all try to attain the dignity and happiness of magnanimity and escape from the tormenting urgencies of personal desire. In the past, that struggle has generally assumed the form of a religious struggle. Religion is the antagonist of self. In their completeness, in the life that was professionally religious, religions have always demanded great subordinations of self. Therein lay their creative force. They demanded devotion and gave reasons for that demand. They disentangled the will from the egotistical preoccupations, often very completely. There is no such thing as a self-contained religion, a private religious solo. Certain forms of Protestantism and some mystical types come near to making religion a secluded duet between the individual and his divinity, but here that may be regarded as a perversion of the religious impulse. Just as the normal sexual complex excites and stirs the individual out of his egotism to serve the ends of the race, so the normal religious process takes the individual out of his egotism for the service of the community. It is not a bargain, a social contract between the individual and the community. It is a subordination of both the existing individual and the existing community in relation to something, a divinity, a divine order, a standard, a righteousness, more important than either. What is called in the phraseology of certain religions conviction of sin and the flight from the city of destruction are familiar instances of this reference of the self-centered individual in the current social life to something far better than either the one or the other. This is the third element in the religious relationship, a hope, a promise, an objective which turns the convert not only from himself but from the world, as it is, towards better things. First comes self-disregard, then service, and then this reconstructive creative urgency. For the finer sort of mind, this aspect of religion seems always to have been its primary attraction. One has to remember that there is a real will for religion scattered throughout mankind, a real desire to get away from self. Religion has never pursued its distinctive votaries. They have come to meet it. The desire to give oneself to greater ends than the everyday life affords, and to give oneself freely, is clearly dominant in that minority, and traceable in an incalculable proportion of the majority. But hitherto, religion has never been presented simply as a devotion to a universal cause. The devotion has always been in it, but it has been complicated by other considerations. 
The leaders in every great religious movement have considered it necessary that it should explain itself in the form of history and a cosmogony. It has been felt necessary to say why and to what end. Every religion, therefore, has had to adopt the physical conceptions and usually also to assume many of the moral and social values current at the time of its formation. It could not transcend the philosophical phrases and attitudes that seemed then to supply the natural frame for a faith, nor draw upon anything beyond the store of scientific knowledge of its time. In this lurked the seeds of the ultimate decay and supersession of every successive religion. But as the idea of continual change going farther and farther from existing realities and never returning them is a new one, as nobody until very recently has grasped the fact that the knowledge of today is the ignorance of tomorrow, each fresh development of religion in the world so far has been proclaimed in perfect good faith as the culminating and final truth. This finality of statement has considerable immediate practical value. The suggestion of the possibility of further restatement is an unsettling suggestion. It undermines conviction and breaks the ranks of the believers because there are enormous variations in the capacities of men to recognize the same spirit under a changing shape. These variations cause endless difficulties today. While some intelligences can recognize the same God under a variety of names and symbols without any severe strain, others cannot even detect the most contrasted gods one from the other, provided they wear the same mask and title. It appears a perfectly natural and reasonable thing to many minds to restate religion now in terms of biological and psychological necessity, while to others any variation whatever in the phrasing of the faith seems to be nothing less than atheistical misrepresentations of the most damnable kind. For these latter god, a god still anthropomorphic enough to have a will and a purpose to display preferences and reciprocate emotions, to be indeed in person must be retained until the end of time. For others, god can be thought of as a great first cause, as impersonal and inhuman as atomic structure. It is because of the historical and philosophical commitments they have undertaken, and because of concessions made to common human weaknesses in regard to such once apparently minor but now vital moral issues as property, mental activity, and public veracity, rather than any inadequacy in their adaptation to psychological needs, that the present wide discredit of organized religions has come about. They no longer seem even roughly truthful upon issues of fact and they give no imperatives over large fields of conduct in which perplexity is prevalent. People will say, I could be perfectly happy leading the life of a Catholic devotee if only I could believe. But most of the framework of religious explanation upon which that life is sustained is too old-fashioned and too irrelevant to admit of that thoroughness of belief which is necessary for the devotion of intelligent people. Great ingenuity has been shown by modern writers and thinkers in the adaptation of venerated religious expressions to new ideas. Pakavi, translated, I have sinned. Have I not written of the creative will in humanity as God, the invisible king, and presented it in the figure of a youthful and adventurous finite God? The word God is, in most minds, so associated with the concept of religion that it is abandoned only with the greatest reluctance. The word remains, 
though the idea is continually attenuated. Respect for him demands that he should have no limitations. He is pushed farther and farther from actuality, therefore, and his definition becomes increasingly a bundle of negations. Until at last, in his role of the absolute, he becomes an entirely negative expression. While we can speak of good, some say, can speak of God. God is the possibility of goodness, the good side of things. If phrases in which the name of God is used are to be abandoned, they argue, religion will be left speechless before many occasions. Certainly there's something beyond the individual that is and the world that is, on that we have already insisted as a characteristic of all religions, that persuasion is the essence of faith and the key to courage. But whether that is to be considered, even after the most strenuous exercises in personification, as a greater person or a comprehensive person, is another matter. Personality is the last vestige of anthropomorphism. The modern urge to a precise veracity is against such concessions to traditional expression. On the other hand, there is in many fine religious minds a desire amounting almost to a necessity for an object of devotion, so individualized as to be capable at least of a receptive consciousness, even if no definite response is conceded. One type of mind can accept the reality in itself, which another must project and dramatize before it can comprehend it and react to it. The human soul is an intricate thing which will not endure elucidation when that passes beyond a certain degree of harshness and roughness. The human spirit has learnt love, devotion, obedience, and humility in relation to other personalities, and with difficulty it takes the final step to a transcendent subordination, from which the last shred of personality has stripped. It matters not immediately material, language has to work by metaphors. And though every metaphor carries its own peculiar risks of confusion, we cannot do without them. Great intellectual tolerance is necessary, therefore, a cultivated disposition to translate and retranslate from one metaphysical or emotional idiom to another, if there is not to be a deplorable wastage of moral force in our world. Just now I wrote Pakavi because I had written God the Invisible King, but after all I do not think it was so much a sin to use that phrase. God the Invisible King as an error and expression. If there is no sympathetic personal leader outside of us, there is at least in us the attitude we should adopt towards a sympathetic personal leader. Three profound differences between the new mental dispositions of the present time and those of preceding ages have to be realized if current developments of the religious impulse are to be seen in their correct relationship to the religious life of the past. There has been a great advance in the analysis of psychic processes and the courage with which men have probed into the origins of human thought and feeling. Following upon the biological advances that have made us recognize fish and amphibian and the bodily structure of man, have come these parallel developments in which we see elemental fear and lust and self-love molded, modified, and exalted under the stress of social progress into intricate human motives. Our conception of sin and our treatment of sin have been profoundly modified by this analysis. Our former sins are seen as ignorances, inadequacies, and bad habits. And the moral conflict is robbed of three-fourths of its ego-centered melodramatic quality. We are no longer moved to be less wicked, 
We are moved to organize our conditioned reflexes and lead a life less fragmentary and silly. Secondly, the conception of individuality has been influenced and relaxed by biological thought, so that we do not think so readily of the individual contra mundum as our fathers did. We begin to realize that we are egotists by misapprehension. Nature cheats the self to serve the purposes of the species by filling it with wants that war against its private interests. As our eyes are opened to these things, we see ourselves as beings greater or less than the definitive self. Man's soul is no longer his own. It is, he discovers, part of a greater being which lived before he was born and will survive him. The idea of a survival of the definite individual, with all the accidents and idiosyncrasies of his temporal nature upon him, dissolves to nothing in this new view of immortality. The third of the main contrasts between modern and former thought, which have rendered the general shapes of established religion old-fashioned and unserviceable, is a reorientation of current ideas about time. The powerful disposition of the human mind to explain everything as the inevitable unfolding of a past event which, so to speak, sweeps the future helplessly before it, has been checked by a mass of subtle criticisms. Conception of progress as a broadening and increasing purpose, a conception which is taking hold of the human imagination more and more firmly, turns religious life towards the future. We think no longer of submission to the irrevocable degrees of absolute dominion, but of participation in an adventure on behalf of a power that gains strength and establishes itself. The history of our world, which has been unfolded to us by science, runs counter to all the histories on which religions have been based. There was no creation in the past, we begin to realize, but eternally there is creation. There was no fall to account for the conflict of good and evil but a stormy ascent. Life as we know it, it is a mere beginning. It seems unavoidable that if religion is to develop unifying and directive power in the present confusion of human affairs, it must adapt itself to this forward-looking, individuality-analyzing turn of mind. It must divest itself of its sacred histories, its gross preoccupations, its posthumous prolongation of personal ends. The desire for service, for subordination, for permanent effect, for an escape from the distressful pettiness and morality of the individual life is the undying element in every religious system. The time has come to strip religion right down to that, to strip it for greater tasks than it has ever faced before. The histories and symbols that served our fathers encumber and divide us. Sacraments and rituals harbor disputes and waste our scanty emotions. The explanation of why things are is an unnecessary effort in religion. The essential fact in religion is the desire for religion and not how it came about. If you do not want religion, no persuasions, no convictions about your place in the universe can give it to you. The first sentence in the modern creed must be, Not, I believe, but I give myself. To what, and how, to these questions we will now address ourselves. Chapter 6. Modern Religion is Objective To give oneself religiously is a continuing operation expressed in a series of acts. It can be nothing else. 
You cannot dedicate yourself and then go away to live just as you have lived before. It is a poor travesty of religion that does not produce an essential change in the life which embraces it. But in the established and older religions of our race, this change of conduct has involved much self-abasement merely to the god or gods, or much self-mortification merely with a view to the moral perfecting of self. Christian devotion, for example, in these early stages before the hermit life gave place to organized monastic life, did not to any extent direct itself to service except the spiritual service of other human beings. But as Christianity became a definite social organizing force, it took on a great series of healing, comforting, helping, and educational activities. The modern tendency has been and is all in the direction of minimizing what one might call self-centered devotion and self-subjugation, and of expanding and developing external service. The idea of inner perfectibility dwindles with the diminishing importance attached to individuality. We cease to think of mortifying or exalting or perfecting ourselves and seek to lose ourselves in a greater life. We think less and less of conquering self and more and more of escaping from self. If we attempt to perfect ourselves in any respect, it is only as a soldier sharpens and polishes an essential weapon. Our quickened apprehension of continuing change, our broader and fuller vision of the history of life, disabuse our minds of many limitations set to the imaginations of our predecessors. Much that they saw as fixed and determinant, we see as transitory and controllable. They saw life fixed in its species and subjected to irrevocable laws. We see life struggling insecurely, but with a gathering successfulness for freedom and power against restriction and death. We see life coming at last to our tragic and hopeful human level. Unprecedented possibilities, mighty problems, we realize, confront mankind today. They frame our existences. The practical aspect, the material form, the embodiment of the modernized religious impulse is the direction of the whole life to the solution of these problems and the realization of their possibilities. The alternative before man now is either magnificence of spirit and magnificence of achievement or disaster. The modern religious life, like all forms of religious life, must needs have its own subtle and deep interactivities, its meditations, its self-confrontations, its phases of stress and search and appeal, its serene and prayerful moods. But these inward aspects do not come into the scope of this present inquiry, which is concerned entirely with the outward shape the direction, and the organization of modern religious effort, with the question of what, given religious devotion, we have to do and how that has to be done. Now, in the new and greater universe to which we are awakening, its immense possibilities furnish an entirely new frame and setting for the moral life. In the fixed and limited outlook of the past, practical good works took the form mainly of palliative measures against evils that were conceived of as incurable. The religious community nursed the sick, fed the hungry, provided sanctuary for the fugitive, pleaded with the powerful for mercy. It did not dream of preventing sickness, famine, or tyranny. Otherworldliness was its ready refuge from the invincible evil and confusion of the existing scheme of things. But it is possible now to imagine an order in human affairs from which these evils have been largely or entirely eliminated. More and more people are coming to realize that such an order is a material possibility. 
And with the realization that this is a material possibility, we can no longer be content with a field of good deeds and right action restricted to palliative and consolatory activities. Such things are merely first aid. The religious mind grows bolder than it has ever been before. It pushes through the curtain it once imagined was a barrier. It apprehends its larger obligations. The way in which our activities conduce to the realization of that conceivable better order in human affairs becomes the new criterion of conduct. Otherworldliness has become unnecessary. The realization of this possible better order brings us at once to certain definite lines of conduct. We have to make an end to war, and to make an end to war we must be cosmopolitan in our politics. It is impossible for any clear-headed person to suppose that the ever more destructive stupidities of war can be eliminated from human affairs until some common political control dominates the earth, and unless certain pressures due to the growth of population, due to the enlarging scope of economic operations, or due to the conflicting standards and traditions of life are disposed of. To avoid the positive evils of war and to attain the new levels of prosperity and power that now come into view, an effective world control, not merely of armed force, but of the production and main movements of staple commodities and the drift and expansion of the population is required. It is absurd to dream of peace and worldwide progress without that much control. These things assured the abilities and energies of a greatly increased proportion of human beings could be diverted to the happy activities of scientific research and creative work with an ever-increasing release and enlargement of human possibility. On the political side, it is plain that our lives must be given to the advancement of that union. Such a forward stride in human life, the first stride in a mighty continuing advance, an advance to which no limit appears, is now not simply materially possible. It is urgent. The opportunity is plain before mankind. It is the alternative to social decay. But there is no certainty, no material necessity that it should ever be taken. It will not be taken by mankind inadvertently. It can only be taken through such an organization of will and energy to take it as the world has never seen before. These are the new imperatives that unfold themselves before the more alert minds of our generation. They will presently become the general mental background, as the modern interpretations of the history of life and of the material and mental possibilities about us establish themselves. Evil political, social, and economic usages and arrangements may seem obdurate and huge, but they are neither permanent nor uncontrollable. They can be controlled, however, only by an effort more powerful and determined than the instincts and inertias that sustain them. Religion, modern and disillusioned, has for its outward task to set itself to the control and direction of political, social, and economic life. If it does not do that, then it is no more than a drug for easing discomfort, the opium of the peoples. Can religion, or can it not, synthesize the needed effort to lift mankind out of our present disorders, dangers, and baseness, frustrations, and futilities, to a phase of relative security, accumulating knowledge, systematic and continuing growth in power, and the widespread, deep happiness of hopeful and increasing life. Our answer here is that the religious spirit, in the light of modern knowledge, can do this thing, 
And our subject now is to inquire what are the necessary opening stages in the synthesis of that effort. We write from this point onward for those who believe that it can, and who do already grasp the implications of world history and contemporary scientific achievement. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.